Hello, and welcome to the Alternate History Class Podcast. My name is Andrew, and here I explore alternate history through the lens of a history class from another timeline. Last week, we looked at how the South won the Civil War. This week, we'll look at how both nations react in the aftermath of the South's shocking. Class, last week we left off after the elections of Seymour and Davis to their respective presidencies. We will look today at how those two presidents and their successors would carry those nations in the coming 15 or so years. We'll start with the United States. Now, after President Seymour took office in March of 1865, he made it his top priority to set up a compensation program for slave owners who would uh, soon lose their slaves as the 13th Amendment would be ratified shortly. And with a majority in the House and Senate, the president was able to to ratify a rather expensive $100 million pool of money to pay out former slave owners for their slaves. And they did it about a month early, so they had a little bit of time, as the 13th Amendment was officially ratified on May 16th of 1865. Now, this wasn't the only thing Seymour had to hurry into, as the United States had lost Washington, D.C. in the war. So a new capital was needed. Now most of these proceedings were being carried on in Philadelphia, but it came to the conclusion that the new capital of the United States should follow the precedent that Washington DC had of being a more central capital to the United States. And so on July 4th of 1865, President Seymour officially signed into law the new capital bill. Uh, in which the United States agreed to purchase Chicago from the state of Illinois, renaming the city Franklin in honor of Benjamin Franklin, obviously, and making it the new capital of the United States. In the midterms, the Democrats did lose some progress, but they were able to maintain a narrow control of the House but lost the Senate as they lost a couple of seats in the eastern part of the country, as there were some more upset voters who wanted the capital to be some more more historic, like Philadelphia or New York City. Now, the next major event in U.S. history would be Nebraska joining the Union, uh, as depending on how you count it, either the 38th or the 26th state, it was the 38th to join. But with the 12 states that left the Union, it became the 26th state in the Union. This would shortly precede the purchase of Alaska by the United States from Russia. We can see here the Seymour administration following its kind of plan to do things that would make the American people, the Union, to 
feel proud of their nation, to feel like they were actually doing something, you know, that they weren't just kind of this defeated nation. They were still growing. They were still expanding. Now, this wasn't universally beloved, but it was a generally popular move to purchase Alaska. Critics labeled it as Pendleton's folly after Secretary of State George Pendleton. But all of this joy and happiness would soon be greatly overshadowed by the first Mormon rebellion in July of 1867. It officially kicked off on July 10th of 1867, in which the Mormons in the territory of Utah declared the independent state of Deseret, following in the Confederacy's footsteps. Now, the Union would need a top general for this campaign. And with their top general, George McClellan, currently serving as the Secretary of War in the Seymour administration, they turned to, under the advice of George McClellan, to the one general who had found much success against the Confederacy now, it all being in the West. Uh, So it didn't get the hype that the Eastern victories by the Confederacy did. That would be one General Ulysses S. Grant. Now, Grant was a very aggressive general, and he knew that the Mormons did not have the numbers compete with the United States. They did not have the manpower. They did not have the industry. They didn't have much of anything except the element of surprise and home field advantage. So in a strategy that was praised by Republicans as doing what needed to be done and criticized by Democrats as butchery, Grant went in and ended up crushing the want-to-be nation of Deseret. He did this quickly, taking Salt Lake City and capturing Mormon leadership on September 28th of 1867. This is where he gained the nickname Unconditional Surrender Grant. Not the flashiest nickname, but it was his policy when facing Mormon troops that he would accept nothing but an unconditional surrender. With the capturing of the Mormon leadership, they were sent back east to face trials for treason. Now, not wanting to risk a civilian court citing a president that said secession was legal, The Mormon leadership was tried in military tribunals in November of 1867. And the leadership, including the head of the church, Brigham Young, were executed after being found blatantly guilty of treason. Now, this quick victory gave Grant a large amount of popularity to a degree where some were wondering if he would run for president in the upcoming 1868 election. And knowing he was a Republican, the Seymour administration decided to try to get him out of the public eye as much as possible and appointed him the military governorship of Utah, where Grant would run a very strict administration, very anti-Mormon, trying to for lack of a better word, purged the church from the state as much as possible as he viewed it as as the driving force behind the rebellion. Now, with Grant 
occupied out west governing Utah. The Republicans had to turn elsewhere to find their presidential nominee as they nominated Horace Greeley for president, the newspaper tycoon from New York. And his running mate would be Schuyler Koufax Jr. But the Seymour administration, after winning the war against the Mormons, after expanding the United States' reach and influence in the world, was popular enough to solidly defeat Greeley, but it showed that the Republicans still had life and hope for the future. That party had not been killed by the Civil War. Now, President Seymour didn't have a necessarily extremely eventful second term. I mean, the Transcontinental Railroad was completed in Utah on May 10th of 1869, but most of his second term was defined by his wars with the native tribes in primarily the Plains states, but also in New Mexico and Arizona. He wanted to show to the public that the United States was still a capable military power. Now, they weren't fighting anybody who was nearly close to the same technological level as they were. But, you know, it was a good propaganda victory for the United States, who didn't want to be down and out at this point. And it was a very successful campaign that helped drive the natives further and further west. Now, in the 1872 election, the Republicans were very split on who to nominate as the presidency was opened as President Seymour announced that he would not be seeking a third term following the precedent set by George Washington and all multi-term presidents who had come before. Once again, in a narrow nomination, in a hotly contested nomination process, in June of 1872, Horace Greeley became the Republican nominee for president again, but Henry Wilson would be his vice president this time. This upset some more hardline Republicans. These Republicans known as the Radical Republicans, would have been much more pro-abolition, much more anti-slavery, and wanted someone who presented a harder line, both towards the Confederacy and for rights for the newly freed slaves. This meant that the Radical Republicans would nominate Senator Benjamin Wade for president at their own separate convention a week later. The Democrats, having learned from 1860, decided they needed to find a candidate that would unify them and chose George McClellan, who was a rather uninspired choice. He was not very popular. He was viewed as one of the main reasons the Union lost the Civil War secondary only to President Lincoln. But McClellan would lead a United Democratic ticket with Francis Blair, and he would go on to defeat both Greeley and Wade in the election of 1872. And McClellan would continue the policy that President Seymour had set of pursuing the Indians, getting victories against these tribes to expand further and further westward to bring white settlers 
further and further westward. And those would be relatively successful and would help his public opinion. But McClellan did something in 1874 that was designed to try to soften relations with the Confederacy, but was extremely unpopular with the American public. And this would be his removal of the 12 stars that represented the Confederate states from the U.S. flag. This would seal his fate as long as the Republicans could remain united. And the Republicans knew this opportunity. And so they found a figure that they knew had, was popular and could win. And also, for, luckily for them, was a Republican. That would be the military governor of Utah, Ulysses S. Grant, who would have James Blaine from Maine as his vice president. Now, McClellan, in a move to try to boost his uh, electoral support, admitted Colorado into the Union in 1876, making it the 27th star on his flag. But this would be a futile effort as Grant would easily defeat McClellan, winning over 200 electoral college votes, McClellan not even being able to manage to put together 20. And this would be a banner year for Republicans who would take controls of both houses of Congress for the first time since the War of Secession. And during this first term, Grant would push some of the more radical Republicans' ideas, would pass the 14th and 15th Amendment that would make it constitutionally legal that the freed slaves could now vote and that they could not be discriminated against based off of the color of their skin. And with the low black population in the North, most Northerners had absolutely no problem with this. They also viewed it as a way to help distinguish themselves from the Confederacy, to make themselves morally superior to the Confederacy. Now let's jump back in time a bit and see how the Confederacy was doing over this point in time. Before earning their independence, the Confederacy had come to agreement with France to help prop up the Mexican emperor that Napoleon III had set up on the throne in Maximilian. And on January 28th of 1865, after the death of Republican guerrilla commander Antonio Rojas in Puerto Rilos, Jefferson Davis would ask the Confederate Congress for a declaration of war uh, against the Mexican Republicans to, as he, as he put it, bring a swift end to the needless violence of the rebels against Emperor Maximilian I. This would be unanimously approved, and the Confederacy would enter its first war as a fully independent nation. On January 29th, the day after the declaration of war was granted, the Confederate Chief of Staff of the Army, Robert E. Lee, would appoint General Thomas Stonewall Jackson 
to lead the Confederate Army in Mexico. This war would carry on for most of the remainder of the year, being wrapped up on December 9th of 1865, when the leader and president of the Republicans, Benito Juarez, would flee to the United States, where he would live the remainder of his life in exile, as the Mexican Empire would take full control of the country. The Confederacy up to this point had had its capital in the capital of Virginia, Richmond, but decided to move the capital north a little bit to Washington, D.C., as kind of a way to rub it in the Union's face, uh, that they had been able to take the capital, named after the famous Virginian in the peace deal. Now, things would quickly move along in the Davis administration. Shortly after the war ended, the Confederate Congress would start moving through a Trans-Confederate Railroad bill, which would quickly be signed into law on January 16th of 1866, which would construct a railroad from the new capital of Washington to El Paso, Texas. And six months later, on June 16th of 1866, in accordance with a deal that President Davis had made with the five civilized tribes, what was known as the Indian Territory was reorganized into the state of Sequoia, the only non-white majority state in the Confederacy, as it was almost entirely a Native American state and had a great deal of autonomy within the Confederacy. Now, with most of their internal affairs and their deal with the French concluded, the Confederacy looked to expand, and then in the second half of 1866, they entered into negotiations with Spain to try to buy their island of Cuba. The Spanish were much more open to it than most people had thought at the time, but the deal ultimately fell apart when the Confederacy tried to pay a small portion of what Spain wanted for the crown jewel of what remained of their dwindling empire. Now, Cuba was in constant rebellion, and so the Confederacy decided to take advantage of it, making secret deals with the guerrilla leaders. And on October 10th of 1868, the Confederacy declared war on Spain to support uh, what it called the independence and free decision of the Cuban people. Now, this would short happen shortly before the election that same November, where in much like George Washington, despite his refusal to run, Robert E. Lee was elected unanimously by the Confederate Electoral College to the presidency with John C. Breckinridge named his vice president. Lee would graciously take up these reins despite his advanced age and somewhat declining health. He felt he could at least make it four years. 
his administration's primary achievement would be the victory of the Spanish-Confederate War in December of 1869, when Cuba's independence was recognized as it became the Republic of Cuba, a Confederate protectorate state. Now, unfortunately for the Confederacy, that would be about all that happened in the Lee presidency, as the much-heralded leader would die on October 12th of 1870. His, his passing was mourned as widely as George Washington's had. This would lead Vice President Breckinridge to take his place. But Breckinridge would not seek to run for election on his own terms, as he was also facing declining health uh, by 1872. And in the first presidential election in which there were re- really were two legitimate candidates, General Stonewall Jackson would defeat J.L.M. Curry to become the fourth president of the Confederacy. Now, it wasn't really a secret that Cuba's independence was more kind of in name only as it applied for statehood in 1874. And on October 10th, it was officially granted statehood and annexed into the Confederacy. Now, things weren't all going well for the new nation as a major slave revolt, the first in the nation's history, would occur deep in the bayous of Louisiana. And while quickly slowed, it would take three months to finally hunt down and eliminate all of the escaped slaves. Now, Jackson would easily win re-election in 1876, defeating John Gregg, who would run under the title of Jacksonian Democrats a more populist kind of blend that was more popular in the West of the Confederacy, which would make this the first election that the Confederates had that actually officially had political parties, as Stonewall would run as a Democrat. Now, the second term for Stonewall Jackson would be relatively uneventful, with the only real event of note being the completion of the Trans-Confederate Railroad, with the final spike being driven in in Chattanooga, Tennessee, on January 16th of 1877. Now, that will be where we will leave off today. Next week, we will dive into the crisis of 1880, which nearly drove the two nations to their second war within 20 years.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Alternate History Class Podcast. As this is a new podcast, I'd love to hear your feedback, so please leave a review. If you enjoy the show, give the show a follow and share it with your friends, family, or anyone you think would enjoy it. If you want to reach out, you can email the show at althistclass at gmail.com or follow it on Twitter at althistclasspod. Tune in next week to see what happens as we journey down the path 